Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. It may be September, but summer is not over. Autumn is not here. Not until Saturday, September 22nd. An eternity away if you are currently in the Northern Hemisphere and experiencing a brutal heat wave, or as I like to think about it, an extended stay in a sauna. And this week, while I'm in New York reporting a hot new story, we're going to bring New York City to you. Or rather, what comes to mind when I think of New York City in the summer? The sweet smell of hot dogs, hotter pavement, stewing garbage, and that je ne sais quoi that I can only assume is rat or subway related. But why does New York City smell? Is its smell distinguishable from other large cities? And does that smell tell us something about the world that our other senses can't? Last year, we spoke to historian Melanie Kiekel, who has devoted a considerable amount of brain and nose power to answering these questions. Her book, Smell Detectives, is an olfactory history of 19th century urban America. And she gets into all these questions, including how odors, good and bad, were essential to the budding environmental movement. So what's the connection between bad smells and disease? Why did 19th century city dwellers care about miasma? And why should we care about what our subjective noses tell us in the 21st century when we've got objective scientific tests to tell us what's bad for us and not? Melanie came to the studio to tell us a little bit more about how to follow our noses. Thanks for joining us, Melanie. Oh, thanks so much, Stephanie. I'm excited to be here. So Small Detectives is about something invisible, which is kind of hard to research. So how do you go about investigating the science or the history of smells when it's not really something that we're able to talk about so easily? I think um, as a historian, I start with the thing that all historians go with, which is documentation. So when I first started this book, I literally went into the archives, and now that we have digitized newspapers, that was a huge boon to me. I searched newspapers in the 19th century for mentions of smell, any and all mentions of smell. They're few and far between, but once I figured out what people were talking about, 
when they talked about smell, then I had purchase into lots of different conversations that were about health, that were about urban growth, um, that were about fresh air. I learned what their words for smell were, which are uh, some things that are different. I wasn't expecting effluvia, for instance, always means smell, just about. Um, I also discovered that offensive really meant offensive to smell. And so once I figured out their language, it's kind of like breaking a code, then I was able to understand what they were talking about. And that led me in some really fascinating directions, um, particularly because they were grappling as well with how do you deal with a problem that's invisible. Um, And that led them to try to make it visible. And so one of my favorite things in the book are the stench maps that I found, where boards of health were trying to make smells visible by actually showing where they originated in cities and then where they went. Um, Because one thing with smell is it always has an origin point, but where you smell that odor can often be quite far afield from where it started. So did you start with like smell and then move on from like odor to taste or something like there were just nine words really Uh (laughs) that I started with and they're the nine words we use for smell today so smell stench fetter that's f-e-t-o-r um rank um was another one aroma perfume can't forget the pleasant odors they're about as well although the stenches definitely get most of the attention so what roles did stench play in the 19th stench there I go again (laughs) what role did smell play in the 19th century why did you choose to focus on this particular area so I was really interested in the 19th century because there's such rapid growth in the United States both in terms of the size of our cities as well as the number of our cities but also the growth of industry there are lots of things that come along with that that we tend not to think about and smells are definitely one of them the other thing that is really fascinating about this period is it's the period before germ theory Um, germs haven't been discovered yet or understood certainly until the tail end of the 19th century so before then people believed that bad airs Um, were one of the things that would make you sick. Um, And that could be anything from headaches and nausea to outbreaks of yellow fever and cholera. Um, All of those get blamed on miasmas, which are bad airs. They don't have to smell, but they often do. Um, And so anytime the air smelled bad, people believed that it was going to make them sick. And this was most famously... um, written by Edwin Chadwick, who's a British sanitarian. He wrote, All Smell is Disease. And that was really widely accepted. Few other people had to write it down. Everyone knew it. It was their common sense. The flip side to that is that good odors, and this is where it gets a little tricky. It's what they define as good. They're not necessarily odors that we think of as good today. Um, Cigar smoke is one in particular. It's a very pungent odor. They thought those could protect you by changing the air that you breathe. So one of the things that I was amazed when I figured it out is that we have this practice in the United States and lots of other places where people plant fragrant flowers around their houses. Lilac bushes um, are really common in the Northeast, for instance, often uh, below windows. The reason that they were planting those in the 19th century was to disinfect the air. 
as it blew from the outside into their homes. Um, So the idea was that these sweet-smelling, pleasant-smelling flowers were going to purify the air so it would not bring disease into the home. And there's regional variations. In New Orleans, um, rosemary was the thing that everyone had in their window boxes. In New York, everyone was planting mignonette. I've read numerous recommendations. You have to have mignonette in your window box because of how it purifies the air. Wow. Well, things have changed quite a bit since the 19th century. Indeed. Indeed, they have. (laughs) So let's talk about the smell detectives of your title. What were they and what did they do? So smell detectives were, as I understand it, anyone with a nose in the 19th century. The title actually comes from... um, an irritated Board of Health president, Charles Frederick Chandler. He's on trial in New York City because citizens are complaining that the Board of Health is not doing its job. They're not abating nuisances. This is in 1878. And the reason that everyone's complaining is the, the Board of Health has put in a lot of regulations, but they can still smell the same things and they smell bad. Chandler's response is that citizens are very poor smell detectives. And I was like, well, that's a great phrase. And he goes on to say that the problem with citizens, so not Board of Health members in the way that he's defining that, is that they smell something that they perceive to be bad and they assume it must be coming from the first thing nearby. And Chandler, on the other hand, was dealing with odors that were um, traveling miles, he thought, from their origins to the people who were complaining. Um, But I really liked the idea of smell detectives. Um, I'd also come across a number of smelling committees, which were definitely people who were out there using their nose (laughs) to understand the environment and often doing exactly the thing that Chandler said citizens couldn't do well, which is trying to follow an odor to its source by using their nose. And were they successful? Is there a good example of a smelling committee being victorious? That depends on your um, point of view. (laughs) So there are quite a few different smelling committees. The first one I encountered is in the 1830s. That's called a smelling committee. But those were people who were sticking their noses where they didn't belong. Um, And so it really was a political joke. It wasn't people who were being smell detectives in the way that Chandler was talking about. In 1862 in Chicago, there was a smelling committee that was created by the city government. Chicago didn't have an active Board of Health in 1862, but they had a lot of smells because the city had really stepped up production, particularly meat production for the Civil War. And so they're getting a lot of complaints. People are worried that um, the whole city is going to shut down. The Board of Trade in particular is worried because the people who worked at the warehouses along the Chicago River were wearing nose guards um, as Close as I understand, a nose guard is something that covers your nose, um, either pinching it shut so you can't smell anything, or um, almost like a ventilator that's supposed to 
purify the air with charcoal dust um, as you breathe it in. Either way, it's uncomfortable. And the next step from a nose guard is not being there. (laughs) So that's what the Board of Trade was worried about. There was no Board of Health. And so the Board of Aldermen, who are the the politicians who ran Chicago, decided they needed to do something. They start doing a lot of things, and one of those things is the smelling committee. It's people who have been deputized, so they're aldermen, deputized now as health wardens, as well as a chemist and um, such reporters as thought they were stench-proof. <laughs> they all board a tugboat, and the chemist is taking measurements of river water um, as they travel up the river, but everyone else is just inhaling whatever's in the air and identifying, oh yeah, there's a problem. And they can see lots of things along the riverbanks that they determine are problematic. And then there are a few other smelling committees that actually adopt the name. That's what they're called both in the press and more formally. Um, But they're often committees that are created by boards of health. Right. So sort of like a first step on the way to these kinds of empirical regulations and environmental changes. So What's the the benefit of having smell committees, I guess, now, after having regulation, after having all of these empirical scientific methods for measuring pollution or whatever? Why use our noses at all? Well, we can still smell bad things in our air. And while it's true that not all pollutants smell, um, and they don't all smell bad in terms of how we perceive the odors and would define them, um, often when you smell something unusual in your environment, it's because there's a change afoot. So in Pittsburgh right now, there's an initiative. They've created an app that makes anyone who wants to log in a smell detective. And what you do is you register what you're smelling and you rate it. Now, they're particularly concerned about air quality issues. And so the only ratings are from fine to as bad as it gets. There's no smells wonderful (laughs) on their rating scale. But what they're doing with that information is they're correlating it with wind direction, with humidity, with um, what's going on at local industries at the same time. And they're using all of that data to understand what effect the industries in Pittsburgh, in particular industrial practices, are having on the air quality of Pittsburgh. And so I think that's a really great model for how we can still use our sense of smell um, and contribute to a lot of the empirical work, um, but also be aware of what is going on in our environment. And, you know, um, we still have a sense of smell for a reason. (laughs) Um, Even though we don't believe that smells cause disease in the way that people did in the 19th century, we can still understand that what we breathe can impact our health. Right. And sometimes it doesn't always like there was the infamous maple syrup case in New York. Yeah, I love that story. (laughs) It's so weird. And then you wrote about this licorice smell in West Virginia, but that was actually nefarious. It was actually nefarious. And that, I think, is a particularly good example because there were a number of nefarious things going on, one of which is that industries weren't reporting the problems that they were having as they were supposed to do under environmental regulations. But when people could smell licorice, they started calling in complaints, right? This was an unusual odor. Not necessarily a bad odor, but that really depends on how you feel about licorice. I hate it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a polarizing (laughs) thing. Um, And what 
that odor and tracking that odor allowed the environmental agency to do was actually find a chemical leak at a local coal processing plant that was running into the water supply. I mean, it was a source of pollution, and it was pollution that was not only in the air, but also in the water. So it was a huge problem. But because the company who knew they had a leak didn't self-report it, um, if people hadn't smelled it, um, I don't know how long it would have taken for environmental protection to realize that the entire water supply was corrupted. Right. And there are other examples, too, that you cite where... I guess our noses are the first red flags that something is wrong. And it's often women's noses, right? Yeah. With the Love Canal, DDT, mm-hmm. even the Flint water. Yeah. And so one of the things that I write about in the book that was true in the 19th century, but I think is still carrying forward in our politics today, is that women are responsible for their family's health. Women, you know, are really paying attention to the home, and they're often the first ones to notice when there's a problem, whether that's a strange smell or it's a child who never gets well um, and wondering why that is. And so in a lot of places where we've had outcries against um, environmental problems, women have been really at the forefront because they're the ones who, while they might not be trained scientists and they don't have the empirical data, they have really pulled together a lot of experiential data that indicates there's a something wrong in this environment, something that's unhealthy. And they, as mothers often, enter our politics to ask for protection for their children. And that was powerful in the 19th century, and it also is powerful today. Right. And fresh air is ultimately the goal of all of these efforts, right? So can you talk a little bit about the origin of fresh air charities and breathing spaces? Absolutely. So one of the flip sides to miasma theory and this belief that bad smells are going to make you sick is that what everyone needs is good air. And this was one of the biggest problems as America's cities were growing and industrializing so rapidly in the 19th century. And so a lot of physicians, a lot of urban designers, that's what we would call them today, urban planners, though that profession didn't exist yet, were thinking about the city in ways in which they could make sure that fresh air entered and was accessible throughout the city. And so you get lots of different ideas that have to do with what fresh air is. One of the first um, is that we need to have parks within our cities because fresh air is the product of movement and it moves across space. And so there has to be open space. And this is one of the um, one of many of the reasons behind the push for Central Park in New York City, which is that it needed to be a reservoir of fresh air or a breathing space for the entire city. And then as you move later in the century and cities are still growing. (laughs) That didn't ever stop or slow down, really. Um, There are lots of other ways in which people are trying to access fresh air, many of those by leaving the city. So summer vacations are a really popular thing then, as well as now, to get out of the city, to get away from the heat, to get away from the smells. Um, And so the Fresh Air Charity was Um, an initiative that started in the 1870s. The most famous is the Fresh Air Fund, which 
still exists and still does this. The Fresh Air Fund's main goal, as well as many other Fresh Air charities, was to take poor children out of the city, their families couldn't afford the same vacations that upper classes could, and take them into the country, to take them to the fresh air, because fresh air wasn't coming to them. Now, they also had moral agendas um, and lots of other things that they were trying to accomplish. But I think one of the things that made them so effective is that everyone regardless of class, regardless of language, um, believed in the importance of fresh air to health. Lots of people still believe in the importance of fresh air to health, and you'll find that um, even though the Fresh Air Fund isn't quite as robust as it was in the 19th century in terms of the numbers, people believe that there's an importance to a change of air. Melanie Kekel's book, Smell Detectives, goes into way more detail about the eponymous sleuths and our fractious relationship with the air around us, including some pretty cool diagrams from the 19th century on how not to ventilate your house and some historical smell maps. For modern smell maps, including Pittsburgh's cool new mobile smell app, make sure you check out the show notes and our episode page at theamericanscholar.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week. Till then, stay cool and stay sharp. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.